Whenever we invite a guest to return back on our show, it actually ends up saving me just a little bit of time because I know that I have already made that person's introduction for Boundless Body Radio. So I don't need to go back and create that again. All I need to do is just make sure that it's updated. If the if our guest has a new book or some new content, I just need to go and make sure that that's all current. Um, and that can be really nice and save me some time. It, also, it can also bite me in the butt a little bit. After we finished our conversation, Nina informed me that the information that I had on the intro that you're you're going to hear in the episode is actually outdated information. She said she didn't really care and it wasn't a big deal, but I just wanted to go back and really make sure that we give the proper introduction to our wonderful guest, Nina Teichels. Uh, We can't really edit it out later since I'm mixing the music at the same time. So we're going to do her real introduction now. Nina Teichels is a returning guest on our show. Be sure to check out her first two appearances on Boundless Body Radio on episode 50 and on episode 258. Nina Teichels is a science journalist and author of the New York Times bestselling The Big Fat Surprise, which upended the conventional wisdom on dietary fat, especially saturated fat, and spurred a new conversation about whether these fats, in fact, cause heart disease. Named a best book of the year by The Economist, Wall Street Journal, and Mother Jones, among others, it continues to be called a must-read for anyone seeking to understand the amazing story of how we came to believe fat is bad for health and what a better diet might look like. Nina is also the founder of the Nutrition Coalition, a nonprofit working to ensure that nutrition policy reflects a transparent process and is evidence-based. Teichels is a graduate of Stanford and Oxford Universities and previously served as an associate director of the Center for Globalization and Sustainable Development at Columbia University. So after that proper introduction, let's get right to our show with Nina Teichels. And welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to reintroduce to you today. Nina Teichels is a returning guest on our show. Be sure to check out her first two appearances on Boundless Body Radio on episode 50 and on episode 256. Nina Teichels is a professor adjunct at New York University's Wagner Graduate School of Public Service. She's the executive director of the Nutrition Coalition, an investigative science journalist and author. Her international bestseller, The Big Fat Surprise, has upended the conventional wisdom on dietary fat, especially saturated fat, and challenged the very core of our nutrition policy. The Big Fat Surprise was named a 2014 best book by The Economist, The Wall Street Journal, Forbes, Mother Jones, Kirkus Reviews, and Library Journal. Teichel's writing has also been published in The BMJ, The New York Times, The Atlantic, The Independent, The New Yorker, and The Los Angeles Times, among others. As the executive director of the Nutrition Coalition, a nonprofit, nonpartisan group that is free from industry funding, Nina has testified before the U.S. Department of Agriculture about the need to reform nutritional guidelines so that they are based on science. Nina Teichels, what an absolute honor it is to welcome you back to Boundless Body Radio. Hi, Casey. It's great to be here. Thank you. So great to have you. I commented on this last time. I'm going to do it again. That last phrase that I have to read that last phrase that you you have to appear before people to tell them they need to reform nutritional guidelines so that they are based on science. It's still absolutely mind blowing. Well, and it's it's so relevant to what 
is going on today, actually, which is that there is a White House conference on hunger, nutrition and health and uh, that President Biden spoke at. There's just, you know, cabinet secretaries are speaking at. And what is the basis of their recommendations, their plan, their national plan for going forward is more of the dietary guidelines. So this they want it to they want I mean, some of the ideas are good. We want more, you know, universal school lunches, which were rolled out for the pandemic and have expired. But really, kids, all kids should be able to have free food and, you know, free meals if they need them. And um, schools being able to do more of the cooking, being able to buy locally. Some of these ideas are great. And overall, there's a statement from President Biden where he says, we are only just realizing how much nutrition affects health. Well, some of us are not just recognizing it, but it's great to see a conference where that is being spoken and there's a focus on nutrition. However, the solution is the same old, same old guidelines, just more of them, more, more of the, these like overtly failed dietary guidelines. So just for people who don't know what the guidelines are, that's the government's plan, the dietary guidelines for Americans, hugely influential affects the food system more than any other policy, even if you don't know about them, they affect you because that's what's served in hospitals and in every possible setting and people have to follow or institutions have to follow the guidelines and all health professionals think that's the gold standard. Six servings of grains per day, including three refined grain servings, 10% of your calories is sugar um, and only vegetable oils. There's only 10% of calories allowed as saturated fats, lean meat, low fat dairy, uh, That's and, and low sodium, right? That's the guidelines. And none of that is based on evidence. Clinical trials testing the guidelines have come up zero benefit. There was one clinical trial that tested the guidelines against a diet that was sort of considered like a bad standard American diet with a lot of desserts and not supposed to be very healthy. Did the guidelines outperform that other diet? It did not, (laughs) except for maybe in like one tiny small outcome measure having to do with blood, you know, one aspect of blood pressure. So, and, you know, and there is, you can look at sort of the guidelines in rolled out in 1980. That is the very year our obesity epidemic really began. 1980, obesity rates in America were under 14%. They're now nearly 43%, probably higher because that 43% number is from 2018. And I've just come across a study, and this is I think commonly known that people have gotten fatter and sicker during the pandemic. There has been a 77% increase in new diagnoses of diabetes among uh, kids age 8 to 18, I think, or maybe 12 to 18 uh, in the pandemic years from previous years. 77% increase in new diagnoses of type 2 diabetes. That is crazy. I mean, what we're seeing is this rollout of this advice uh, for to eat more healthy whole grains, fruits, vegetables, lean meat, low-fat dairy, that's been going on for decades. And look at our results. They just continue to get worse. And now we're facing this whole new effort led by the Biden administration, but plenty of people on board saying we need more of this. Wow. That's like assuming that science is settled and we need more of it, even though... <laughs> Clearly, we do not. So 
sorry, that's kind of a long answer to your opening gambit, but, um, uh, you know, I think we're, we're in trouble with these guidelines. It's just this huge policy that seems to be irreversible. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. You spit out those numbers and yeah, they are based on 2018 and who knows what happened during the pandemic, but I would argue like, go, go walk around, go outside, go to the mall, go to the airport and see, look around you. Like people are really struggling. It's really sad out there. Definitely has gotten worse during the pandemic. And it's interesting too. Like you wrote your book in 2014. Um, you've, you know, founded the coalition and trying to change the guidelines. You would think by now, by doing this for as long as you've done this, like you might be sitting around bored, you accomplish everything you need to, but the, it just keeps going, which has forced you to start your Substack, which is amazing, Unsettled Science, um, which I do want to talk about. You do a great job with those, um, very in-depth. I would expect nothing less from you. Um, but before we do, I think when a lot of people talk about The Big Fat Surprise, which is a fascinating book, I don't know why I let it surprise me every time I read it, which is now probably like five or six times. I, I get something new out of it every time. It's so good every time. It's a big book and it's really entertaining. I love it. And, and, you know, when I hear you talk, I hear you talk about guidelines and Ansel Keys and, you know, the story around cholesterol. And that's a big part of this story. But there's other parts of your book where you go in depth into other things, including the Mediterranean diet, which I think is absolutely fascinating. And I found it quite interesting when I asked some of my clients, like, what is the Mediterranean diet? They can pretty much tell me like, oh, it's, it's, you know, it's fish and fruits and vegetables and lots of grains. You start asking like a few questions and all of a sudden people start to kind of break down, like where in the Mediterranean does that come from? They go, oh, I don't know. Like, okay, well, is this eating like France or like Egypt or like Israel or like Greece? Like, which one is it? And when was this taken? Was this taken like 20, 30 years after World War II? Or was this more recent? And so you do such a great job. So I, I, I would want to know if we could start there and talk about some of the things you learned about the Mediterranean diet. Yeah, I, I, that book chapter in my book um, on the Mediterranean diet is still, I believe, the only critical appraisal of the Mediterranean diet, like a really comprehensive critical appraisal. And I think one of the, the headlines to come out of that chapter is the Mediterranean diet as a commercial concept, as a diet in, you know, sold across and, and promoted across the United States, um, that was produced and created by the International Olive Oil Council, right? This is an organization based in Europe that wanted to increase the sales of olive oil. And how did they do that? They hosted a series of best ever conferences all around the Mediterranean and they, along with other food companies. And they invited the who's who of the nutrition establishment in the United States. They invited food writers. They always had somebody from Harvard. They, um, they had these people who went to those conferences in the nineties, um, describe them as like the most fantastic events where there was literally like um, little bottles of olive oil tucked in your gift bag and the most incredible ever food and hiking up the mountains of Greece to come back to homemade bread by made by the women of the village. That was all a, a, a produced by these food companies led by the Olive Oil Council that wanted to, to sell olive oil to Americans. Very successful. I mean, we, I'm old enough to remember, and you probably aren't, but when olive oil was sort of appeared on the table of all restaurants and was sort of became something that we all dipped our bread in, that wasn't true when I was a young child. So, so 
That is where the diet became commercialized. But what was it before then? Before then, it, it was many diets around the Mediterranean, as you described. They, you know, in Greece, they eat much more lamb than they do in, um, you know, in, in uh, other parts of the Mediterranean. They, the diet in the south of France is different than the diet in the south of Italy. I mean, there's differences in every amount of food they eat and the type of food they eat. And what I realized was, so, so stitching together this diet and to call it one diet has never made sense scientifically. And who created the term the Mediterranean diet is our old friend Ansel Keys, right? He, before he became um, sort of known to us as the person who presented the diet heart hypothesis, and partly where that hypothesis came from, the idea that saturated fat and cholesterol are bad for you, he was obsessed with the Mediterranean as a region to visit. Like I, I write about how he's on um, he's at on sabbatical at an English university, an university in England, and it's cold and it's rainy and the weather is dull, as they say in England. And he and his wife decide to take a train to the Mediterranean where everything is sun-kissed and beautiful. Post-World War II, everything is cheap. And he falls in love with the Mediterranean. Like, don't we all? <laughs> and he ends up having a, having, building a home there. But he travels around to different places in the Mediterranean. And that's where he got his original idea that, that saturated fat, that meat uh, was probably bad for you. Saturated fat was probably bad for you. But he was uh, examining these countries after they had lost this war. You know, there had been millions of people who had left Greece. Millions of people had been dislocated in Italy. Food supply chains had been disrupted and had not been rebuilt. The most famous place that he visited and kind of the like the epicenter of the idea of the Mediterranean diet is the island of Crete. OK, so this was a place where lo seemingly long lived villagers toiled away. They seemed to eat almost you know, no animal foods, but but were very healthy. Keyes visited that um, island three times with his team. One of the times that he visited, he showed up during Lent. Right. So that is a period. The Greek Orthodox Lent is a very strict one where no animal foods are allowed. And he knew that it was that this was a problem and would confound his data. But nevertheless, he decided to go with the data as it was. Um, and so he profoundly undercounted the amount of animal foods that they regularly ate by measuring their diet during Lent. In the end, he only had data on 30 to 33 men, only men, from the island of Crete. So this is a tiny, tiny, tiny sample. And it turns out that his samples in every one of the seven countries that he visited, he visited 11 locations in seven countries, the data sizes of his samples was, was about 30 to 35 people in each of these countries. Tiny. I mean, not a representative sample by any means. But out of this, he wrote a, he and his wife wrote a cookbook called Eating, I think it's called Eating the Mediterranean Way or Living the Mediterranean Way. And that was the first text on the Mediterranean diet based on 30 to 33 men. A little before he arrived, the Rockefeller Foundation had done a study on the same, on the island of Crete also, where they found when they interviewed the villagers the most common thing that they heard was that they wanted more meat. 
that they used to eat more meat and they were sadly deprived of it. And that their word for Lent was the same word for um, sunken or, you know, a woman who looked like she was a witch because she wasn't adequately nourished. They, they did not associate Lent with healthfulness and they had remembered eating more meat as children and hoped to return to that. But they're, um, and that was what they craved the most. They equated it with virility, power, health. But that was not the impression that Ansel Keys took away from the island or the impression that he then promoted to the rest of the world. So let's fast forward from Ansel Keys, who was there in the um, 50s and maybe early 60s, but I think mainly the 50s. Fast forward to Walter Willett at Harvard University. He's enamored with Keys in his office at Harvard when I interviewed uh, uh, Walter Willett. The picture on his wall is of him shaking the hands of Ansel Keys wow. in some Mediterranean country. So you can imagine the baton being passed from Ansel Keys to Walter Willett, who picks it up, goes to the Mediterranean, absolutely falls in love like Keys with Mediterranean food, dines out with the Greek scholars, uh, finds the, just finds it, uh, like a, an explosion of flavors in his mouth and he falls in love with the Mediterranean diet. He does his own work in, uh, the Mediterranean. Um, but basically he, most of his data is based on, on the data that came from Ansel Keys. So he doesn't really amplify that data set. So, but he comes out with his Mediterranean, Harvard Mediterranean food pyramid, which is pretty much like the food pyramid we all know, which is the huge bottom slab is all grains um, and then comes fruit and vegetables. The difference with Walter Willett's Mediterranean pyramid is that in the tiny, tiny tip is red meat, worse even than sugar. You could eat more sugar than meat, according to Walter Willett. And he described it as being bathed all in olive oil. So olive oil was this very important component of this diet. Walter Willett came out with this pyramid, no clinical trials on the Mediterranean diet, right? Very popular, a great idea, but no clinical trials really showing that it had any benefits for health, the act, you know, a Mediterranean diet, however you define it. Um, so finally, various food companies got together and sponsored a trial that took place in Spain called the PREDIMED trial. And that's, that it was an interventional trial, right? In one group, they gave them, they, they told them to change their diet. They told them to, um, I mean, it was really strange, like eat more sofrito, which is like this Spanish dish that, that, you know, has no correlate really in the U S and, and they told people to eat less fat, um, on the Mediterranean diet. It turns out that the group that ate the so-called Mediterranean diet, did not reduce their red meat consumption. So they weren't actually looking at any difference in meat. As the trial was happening, like two or th three years went into the trial, which is a pretty long, that's a good long trial. They stopped it because they said the benefit was so huge from the Mediterranean diet that they couldn't ethically keep continuing this trial. Um, and in the end, they, you know, they found what they thought was a significant benefit in terms of cardiovascular outcomes. There was no, no other benefit, not weight, not uh, other metabolic benefits, but there was, it appeared, a benefit for heart attacks, 
death from heart disease. Later, when Richard Feynman, who is um, a scholar at um, Downstate uh, CUNY here in New York, he looked at the actual absolute benefit, which is to say not the relative risk, but the absolute difference in risk. And it was point two. The, the difference was point two in terms of the, you know, the people who were on the diet had a, just the tiniest little bit of benefit compared to the people who were not on the diet. So, um, so in the end, that trial is not as impressive as we think. And uh, quite a bit later, it had to be retracted and republished in the same day, which I think is a first. I've never seen that happen anywhere else, where the authors are allowed to republish on the same day that they retract a paper. Wow. They obviously knew about the retraction ahead of time. They were able to, and it was the New England Journal of Medicine that allowed them to do that. Um, because it turns out that the trial had actually not been properly randomized. Um, and there were another, other problems with the study that John Ioannidis pointed out in a paper that he did on PREDIMED, where he looked at the various, not just randomization, but other problems with that paper. So that's the main trial for the Mediterranean diet. In other trials of the diet, and there has now been quite a few, and I'm talking about clinical trials now that can show cause and effect, the, um, the benefits for weight are very, very modest. And when compared to a low-carbohydrate diet, they're, they're uh, not as impressive as a low-carbohydrate diet. Now I'm referencing a, um, a meta-analysis that was done not too long ago. And, um, and the cardiovascular outcomes were also very moderate, not as good as a low-carbohydrate diet when compared to, to low-carb. So in all, the Mediterranean diet however you want to define it, uh, is not superior to what we've seen now in multiple clinical trials for a low-carbohydrate diet. Yeah, wow. That's so well explained. And I think it's important to point out the context. You mentioned kind of the 80s and the food pyramid that we got in the early 90s. And it's like we were, you know, especially as a nation, but the world was kind of catching on. We're coming out of this phase of like, we went from saturated fat is bad to all fat is bad. And so now we're eating vegetable oils and, you know, eating snack wells. And now we're told to like count things and measure things and have servings of things, which who knows what a serving is. But, but now... You have all these food writers going over to the Mediterranean, writing not about calories as much as they're writing about like food and beautiful experiences. And now it's like fat was fat was pretty much prohibited, but now we can bring it back. And now you have sauces and you can make food taste really good and make it richer. Like why wouldn't everybody jump onto that? And and we probably did better for it, but it's a lot better than low fat. And if somebody told me that they were eating a standard American diet and they were going to do Mediterranean, I'd be, I'd be happy with that. Hopefully it would be a transition to a better diet, but, but yeah, the context would have been so enticing for us to just go straight down that path. Well, it's, you know, like Food has, there are fads in the nutrition world, right? There are just, there are fads that happen. The Mediterranean diet was one of them, but it, it has, it still, it still exists. Like it is still the number one or number two diet every year as reported by U.S. News and World Report and those, I think, absurd diet rankings that they do at the beginning of the year. And that's because there's an industry behind it. What happens is that an industry, and this is, a lot of explanation for why we see what we do in the nutrition world, which is, you know, we, there's so many of us don't understand why is it that, um, why do we have a low fat diet? Well, in that case, you know, there was a whole industry that grew up like the snack wells cookies that grew up around the low fat diet. 
And nutrition is always complicated by the fact that it is tied to this giant behemoth food industry that is trying to figure out, I mean, they're trying to figure out a way to make money off of our, uh, our consuming foods that are unhealthy for us. And the same is true of the Mediterranean diet. There are Mediterranean diet programs. Uh, so it's not just the food industry, but also the healthcare industry. You can sign up for the Mediterranean diet program. There are Mediterranean diet books and diet plans and all of this. It's still a very popular diet, even though it has morphed into something that is would be unrecognizable to anybody in the Mediterranean. I mean, in just two fundamental ways, in the Mediterranean diet, yes, they eat vegetables and they eat fruit for dessert, but they they eat their main courses are, you know, are plenty of meat and cheese and eggs. They are they are not a a largely vegetarian culture by any means. And I think anybody who goes to Europe, you know, or goes to the Mediterranean can just see that. Um so and the other change that's happened that is so ironic is that the Mediterranean diet no longer, as it's understood in America today, no longer contains olive oil. What? Um, and it's not really, it does, it's not part of the Mediterranean diet program anymore. Why? Because again, the vegetable oil companies, which are very powerful in the United States, decided that they did not want olive oil taking over all of, you know, th- taking their place. Um in endless um, diet programs and and in books and everywhere. So what you see now is a a vegetable oil, so sunflower, safflower, canola, whatever. Uh, Soybean is the most commonly consumed oil in America. It's the so-called Mediterranean diet with vegetable or seed oils. So the thing that was defining about the original Mediterranean diet is gone in the American version. That's amazing. I had no idea that was still the case. That's crazy. That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, it's not true of every Mediterranean diet book that you'll see, but you'll see like in the, you know, the USDA, US Department of Agriculture's version of the Mediterranean diet, no olive oil. Wow. That's crazy. Okay. I'm glad I have this next to me and I'm glad you mentioned the top diets ranked by US news or whatever it is. Number one diet, Mediterranean diet. Number five diet, volumetrics diet. Do you know what the volumetrics diet is? I've never heard of it. No. Okay. 15th, no. 13th is the Asian diet. I didn't look into that one, but that's that's a that's a pretty big continent with probably a few different ways of eating. Uh, Biggest Loser took 20th, which is known to crash your metabolic rate. I've measured Biggest Loser contestants on the metabolic cart that I used for over a decade and could verify that. Nutrisystem took 24th. Slim Fast took 26th. Keto and the Modified Keto tied for 37th. And we just beat out, what is it? The Dukin Diet. Have you ever heard of the Dukin diet? I think, yeah. The, yeah. No, I haven't. But I, I, re- I recently gave uh, talked about this in a presentation where I, I analyzed uh, all of these diets. So they have like 40. Now I think the rankings are up to 44. And keto and some whatever they think of as something called modified keto are always dead last. Atkins is always way down the list. There's, so there's like 40 diets that are in between that you've never heard of, like the fire engine diet and all these diets. I went and I actually spent the time looking up how many clinical trials are there for each one of these diets. And almost all of them have that many clinical trials. 
to support them. And most of them are funded by the company. These are branded diets, right? So they, most of it's, it's Dukin, it's funded by Dukin and, um, and, and, and keto and, you know, look, if you look under keto and low carb, low carb, I think has more than 700 clinical trials. Keto has more than a thousand clinical trials that are registered in the, uh, this is not to say they're great clinical trials or what those clinical trials said, but there is a lot of evidence on the diets that are at the bottom of their list. So how do they evaluate their evidence is, 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 through a method that is is not recognizable to like to any international standard that we know, which is where you know clinical trials are supposed to be at the top of the pyramid of evidence or close to the top. And if you you know, and we know that keto has very positive outcomes. So I mean, the way to understand those rankings is that the people running them are are plant based or yeah. let's say vegan. I mean, we know, you know, some of these names may be recognizable to you, but David Katz was the head of that um, committee for quite a while. And, um, you know, if you look down the list, there are Seventh Day Adventists. There are people who are on David Katz's True Health Initiative vegan advocacy group. Almost all of them are on that vegan advocacy group. So those are clearly his handpicked friends who all agree with him about what a, a healthy diet looks like. Yeah. Crazy. Is Michael Greger on that same uh, panel? I think I saw his Maybe. name. Interesting. I don't, you know, I can't remember off the top of my head, but, but I would not be surprised. You can, you can pre-order his next book, which is called literally how not to age. You can't make that up. How not to age. Oh, so, <laughs> well, if you look at Michael Greger, he does not look like he's successfully following his own diet then. 40, I mean, 49 I'm not, years old. I'm not shaming him, but he, you know, he looks, he looks, he looks older than some other 49-year-olds, yeah, I might say. Yeah, absolutely. And when I read that list of diets, I laughed because it's kind of funny if it's you or I or somebody else who's been in this world for a long time, and you can recognize how ridiculous that stuff is. And that's not the yeah. last time I'm going to laugh at something in our conversation today. But the sad thing is that's not funny. Like, people will Google, wow, my neighbor said they lost 40 pounds on keto. Let me just beep, boop, beep into, into Google and pull this up, and that's going to pull up, and they're going to go, wow, I'm so glad I didn't do this. My heart would have blown up. I knew it. I'll just go back to eating what I was doing before. Like this gets a lot of attention. It sucks. It does. Yeah. And, and, and really the way to understand that is that most of our media is now owned by large corporations and we, we do not have a free and open and critical media anymore. And I think that's a, I mean, that's true in many different fields, uh, that I follow, but, um, and, but in you know it, it's definitely true in true in nutrition. I mean the kinds of articles and debate that we could have seen, say in the New York Times ten years ago, are gone. There's one narrative in not just that paper, but in a number of uh, newspapers and magazines. There's just basically one narrative now that is allowed, which is vegan for health, vegan for the planet. Anybody who's saying anything otherwise is a denier of some kind or another. I mean, we're seeing this not only in nutrition, but in other areas as well. But it's truly disappointing. The kinds of stories that reporters wrote, uh, they you just even critical of sugar. You do not even see stories like that anymore. Wow. Um, so, I, you know, I think we're living in a very difficult information environment to get good information. Um in nutrition and in other areas as well. Yeah. And um, it's one of the reasons that I started my Substack because it is 
I'm just not seeing any reporting, like any critical reporting out there. Uh, and so people are consuming what is basically very bland, very kind of vanilla, very corporate driven messages. And, and they're not seeing the information that they need to have in order to make good decisions. Yeah. Well, I appreciate read and share my Substack. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Read and share the Substack. It is amazing. You do a really good job. Like we said earlier, very well researched, really appreciate that deep dive into the Mediterranean diet for clearing that up. I think that's really, really important. Let's talk about some of the things that you've written about recently in your Substack on settled science. So I definitely want to get eventually to the food compass, which I, again, I'm going to, I'm going to laugh a lot about that, but uh, tell us a little bit about, um, you had an article that said USDA ignoring low carb, and this is something you've had a front row to, as you've been trying to you know, work with the nutrition coalition and get the, the our guidelines based on science. What, what were you trying to, what point were you trying to make? Are, are they just ignoring low carbohydrate diets? You mentioned thousands of studies we have at this point. Um, yes, they are basically ignoring low carbohydrate diets. This was a, um, a column that I wrote based in part on emails that I obtained through the freedom of information act. And what I found was that for the 2015 review, scientific reviews for the dietary guidelines that came out that in 2015, okay, we get them every updated every five years. For that go around, there was a secret unpublished review of low carbohydrate diets that happened because some of the members of the expert committee uh, you know, said, we need to review low carbohydrate diets Many people ask us, this is the quote, why this is not the diet of choice, given uh, its outcome, its, its very impressive outcomes for weight loss. They did that review. They, uh, it was circulated amongst just a few committee members out of maybe 15, 16 members, just a few knew about it. And there was a conversation about it where a Harvard, a pr professor, Frank, who, who was on the committee says, uh, you know, what, where we, we need to publish this. There were, they had found 43 studies at the time, which is, which is far lower than the actual number of studies that existed, but it was enough. And there were very impressive results in terms, especially in terms of weight loss. The, the administrators at the U S department of agriculture in charge said, we are going to publish this in the methodology section. And this Harvard professor pipes up and says, I don't think it belongs in the methodology section. And he was right, right? It belongs in the results section where it can actually be considered. Uh, he says, um, people will accuse us of burying it. Those were his words in that section. There's such a benefit from this diet. It needs to be discussed in the results section. And that's the end of that conversation. And there's no discussion of low carbohydrate in the results section, or maybe it's listed amongst you know, 25 other diets. Fast forward 2020, the expert committee actually did review the low carbohydrate diet in its formal public reviews, and they could find zero low carbohydrate studies. This is in 2020. You know, I mean, you or I could list a hundred such studies off the top of our head, but it's all the same administrators who had previously seen the review with 43 studies. So they know at least there's 43 studies. They couldn't find any of those. They couldn't find even a study that had been done by one of the members on the expert committee. So like her own study, they couldn't find, or they used, so they couldn't find them. They use exclusion criteria that are so strict that no study can meet them. 
So they said, we can't say anything about low carb. There's no information on it. And then now we're, we've just, we've begun the, the whole process yet again for, um, 2025 guidelines. Um, and again, like this is the law of the land in terms of gold standard. And they said, we're not asking any questions on low carbohydrate diets. Well, when we heard this at the nutrition coalition, we sort of started, made an effort to try to get people to submit public comments during the public comment period when the scientific questions came out. 70% of all the commenters were people saying, we need a low carb diet. You need to study this. It was, and it would have been hundred percent of practically of comments, but one comment came in from the society of uh, metabolic health practitioners and they had like 400 doctors on just one comment. But, um, and so we don't know at this point if they're going to look at low carb diets, but they are, they are to use the term, the word that, um, Frank who used, they are burying the science on this. That's crazy. I mean, that's unequivocal. So, um, yeah, I mean, at this point it's, it's really, uh, I mean, it's, I think it's fair to say that the science is just being suppressed. Yeah. Wow. And you, you actually published a paper where you looked into the people that are writing the guidelines and found all of their conflicts of interest, which I found, um, I found fascinating as well. What, what was the percentage of them who have yeah. like industry ties or conflicts of interest? Well, that was um, another, it was a peer reviewed uh, paper that was in public health nutrition. I did with a number of other co-authors. We found um, it analyzed the expert committee for the 2020 gu- guidelines 95% of them had at least one conflict with the food or pharmaceutical industries. Over half of them had 20 conflicts or more. And I'll just uh, maybe give you a little detail on that. It's it's truly, um, you know, the, the, the standard that has been set by the Institute of Medicine for Clinical Guidelines says that no more than half of the panel should have conflicts. Okay, that's already a lot. That's a lot. In my <laughs> half of them, but this is 95% have them. And you could argue that a hundred percent have conflicts because they all receive, almost all of them receive uh, money from government contracts and by administered by the same agencies that put out the guidelines. So if you're going to challenge the guidelines, you have to wonder if that will threaten your future grant funding. Right. Um, so, and it's not a, a small amount of money. Um, let me just see if I can. Oh, yeah. Since 2008, the total amount received by all the committee members from the government was $200 million in wow. grants. Um, with the top, so with the top one receiving $52 million. Um, and, and, and that's again, 95% of the committee, it receives some money from the same agencies administering the dietary guidelines. Um, and the, some other findings that we had, who were the industries that contributed the most to committee members? Well, one of them was the International Life Sciences Institute, which is a, a group that is a kind of trade group of multinational food companies. So the ConAgra, Nestle, PepsiCo, Mars, the, all those companies are part of this group. They are notorious for, they're called ILSI. They're notorious for going out and trying to push a high sugar diet, more, um, more sodas. They, they resist, um, any kind of efforts to put limits on sugar, but ILSI had given to 11 or, or had ties with 11 or 12 members out of a 20 person committee. 
The second uh, one was Mead Johnson, which had 43 ties with the committee. And this is the committee that's made the, for the first time, birth to 24 months recommendations. Mead Johnson is a big producer of breast milk substitutes. So infant, you know, nutrition. Um, the California Walnut Commission was a big, uh, did a lot of donations as did um, another nut group. And as people probably don't know, but the protein category is slowly moving over to uh, suggest more nuts and seeds in place of more complete proteins that come from animals. Um, there was also General Mills, which produces food and beverage. Nestle is what just comes up again and again. And um, the, the first um, animal foods group is the American Egg Board, which had 20 ties with committee members. But I think what is in part interesting about this is that the story that we've been told by people like um, Marion Nessel at New York University, who's a very well-known um, food writer or, or, um, and has written about food politics, that narrative is always that it's the big bad meat industry that is you know, dominating the lobbying efforts. But they are not in the top 10 on this list. Um, they're, you know, they, and, and what we see is that the links to, um, to ultra-processed food companies or you know, packaged food companies, there are many more ties to those big multinational companies than there are to meat. And you know what else ranks up there really high, which is surprising. I think most people don't necessarily make this connection, but pharmaceutical companies, many more connections to pharmaceutical companies. Well, and people, you know, you might wonder, well, what does that have to do with nutrition? Just to give you one example, three of the committee members had um, pretty substantial ties to these meal replacement formulas um, like Optifast, Medifast, SlimFast. One of the committee members was the medical director for Nestle's Optifast. So when they're promoting and their income depends on promoting a non-food solution to obesity or any other disease, what is their interest in finding a good food-based solution that would put them out of business? (laughs) Yeah, that's just one example. Um, you know, obviously, the pharmaceutical interests companies they they you know they're in the business of managing and extending progressive chronic diseases. They're not in the business of reversing those diseases. It's so important to understand that you have to understand that when you're when you're reading these articles because otherwise the headlines or the main picture that they show will grab the attention and people will remain confused. You know. Disease and, and, and death are the fastest growing industries in America. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't mean to laugh when I say that, but it's, it's just the growth of these industries is astronomical. They are huge. When you go to any town in America, uh, I've been all over lecturing. What is the spanking new building that you see in town? It is a dialysis center. It is a center for children's cancer. It is some new healthcare building. That is where the money is. Yep. And that's because that industry is thriving. Thriving. Wow. Yeah, that's so sad. And the death and destruction of our health as as the reward for money. It's so sad. We do, <laughs> okay, we do every like few months or few years, there's some new like kind of 
food recommendation or a scale of food, in this case, the food compass that comes out of Tufts. They're going to go through and based on different things, they're going to create this uh, this great list, like 8,000 different foods ranked for good things you know, being part of that food and bad things not being part of that food. And so they go through and kind of find some like things to make this ranking. I, when I <laughs> when I read your tweet about this, like I knew that this was out, but when I read the tweet to see how ridiculous this was, I was stoked because this is so over the top ridiculous. I thought this might actually like help people realize how stupid this is. Can you tell us about the food compass? Yeah, this is a food ranking system that was developed by Darush Mozafarian, who's the head of the Tufts University Friedman School of Nutrition and Policy. I'm mentioning his name because I'm going to bring it up again later, and it's important. The, in a 2021 paper, they came up with this ranking system. Ranking systems are important because like, they can be sold, say, to a supermarket chain that wants to say, okay, these, this is, you know, this is Tufts approved healthy food. We're going to put that out there. And that has a stamp of approval. What gets go green, eat more of, um, frosted mini wheats, um, chocolate covered almonds, honey nut Cheerios. Cheerios was received a score of 95 out of hundred as considered one of the healthiest foods on the planet by Tufts. And altogether, they named more than 70 brand name cereals. So cereals named by brand, including Lucky Charms and, and, um, and others, they were go-to eat more foods considered far healthier than the red do not eat foods, which included a whole egg cooked in butter cheddar cheese and ground beef, which got one of the lowest scores uh, of this food pyramid. I'm sure you can flash it up here for people to see, but that's, uh, that's not a, a colored version, but it's um, egg whites cooked in vegetable oils were also considered more healthy than a whole boiled egg. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's just a, like a diabetes, a give me diabetes diet. Right. And the fact that they're brand named cereals just reeks of the promotion of industry interests. Like there's no other way to read that. It's so absurd. And it just, it's, I mean, I do in my Substack column go into the specific reasons how uh, Mozafarian ended up with his rankings, like exactly how, what they did, how did they, they automatically discounted meat that was considered unhealthy, just like it could never score higher than 70 out of a hundred just by virtue of being meat. Um, so you can read the details if you want, but it's just, it's patently absurd on the face of it. It's crazy. And I mentioned Mozafarian because who is the most prominent nutrition scientist who has been leading the entire effort for the white house conference on hunger, nutrition, and health to reach Mozafarian. He is, he has been driving this whole process. He is the most prominent person. Uh, and Tufts is basically hosting all the materials for the conference and has been the main partner in making this happen. Same people who think you should eat Cheerios as the healthiest food on the planet. 
It's it's absolutely bananas. I'm looking at the list now. So the two top ones, 100 out of 100 points, are watermelon and kale. What, what is nutritious about a watermelon? I know for a fact that my client, who is a former type 2 diabetic, he's completely addicted to watermelon. And on, in watermelon season, he'll give in, and his blood sugar will go crazy to the point that he'll need to use insulin again temporarily. And he does that knowingly, and he can't get away from it. But how how is watermelon healthier than than millet even like millets 65 watermelons 100 like even if you eat plant-based this makes no sense is there anybody that like supports this besides tuft has this been like reviewed and you know a group organization other organizations have said yes this is amazing we love this we get behind this you know i i all i know is that it has this paper has been cited quite a lot and other scholars in the field have used the food compass the compass to do further analyses. Like they have taken it at face value and said, okay, how could we implement this? What would be a way to um, do this in a cost-effective way or whatever they're doing? So it's, it, and it hasn't received any criticism other than this one paper, which is the paper that I cite as the basis for my analysis. And that paper could not, they couldn't find anybody to publish their work. Wow. So, uh, so as far as I know, the, the nutrition experts in the field have received this and accepted it as something worthwhile, Wow! which tells you a lot about what you need to know about nutrition. I mean, the whole field just needs to start over. If, if, if you have a group of experts saying that they think Lucky Charms is healthier than eggs, you know that you are in a failed academic discipline. And, that, and that's why I was excited when I saw it, because I thought, okay, this is the first thing that we don't, we don't need to do like studies. We don't know, need to show like a lot of evidence. This is common damn sense. This is common sense. Anybody should be able to look at this and go, okay, like, come on, come on. This it, it's insane. You know, I agree, but I think it's like, we live in a time when absurdities are accepted as our, our, sort of a common reality that we're supposed to find rational and, and food is just definitely one of them. And again, who would be the critics? It has historically been journalists, the fourth estate, or it was other scientists who would make critiques, but we, we are no longer in a free environment. Uh, uh, I mean, a free information environment. Yeah. So is, is things like this, your Substack is this like the very best way that you can get your message out? Right now, I would say that is uh, that is where I'm putting my energy. So yes, I would love, um, and I plan to expand it and have other writers such as Gary Taubes uh, join me there. I think we need to create a nutrition news universe of good information where we can we can grow up to be a countervailing source to uh, to yet another, um, you know eat more vegan food story in the New York time. Like people need to know what the latest studies actually say. Yeah. I would really look forward to having uh, you and him on the page. That would be awesome. We love Gary and all of his work. So tell us a little bit about this conference that's going on. You wrote about this in one of your latest sub stacks. Um, and it, it really seemed to me like, like even the agenda was like really shrouded or who was going to be there or not be there. What was, what was the deal with that? What was going on with that? It was, uh, it's been a conference that has been in the works in the planning 
uh, as I said, led by Darish Mozaffarian and Tufts, for some years there has been a lot of work and it has involved, when you go back and trace the lead up, it has involved bringing in uh, the whole nutrition establishment. So former secretaries of agriculture, former um, people from health and human services, like a very establishment oriented group, bipartisan, so to their credit, but the people who have created and invested in the guidelines. It's also involved um, a lot of corporations. One of the things they've done is they've rolled out this very appealing concept, food as medicine. Don't we all agree that food should be medicine? But of course, the devil is in the details. What is their version of food as medicine is, uh, you know, is basically it's a rebranding of the dietary guidelines because anything the government does must all federal programs must by law follow the dietary guidelines. So food as medicine is yet another way to say eat more fruits, vegetables, whole grains, low fat, no dairy, and lean meat, more nuts and seeds. That's the guidelines. That's going to be their food as medicine. Now, you know, to their credit, they're going to try to get more food to people who need it, to hungry people. But the main problem is they're not delivering foods that really contain the nutrients in the form that people can absorb. So it's it's not food as medicine in a way that will actually uh, help people to recover from their their chronic diseases. So the conference, I, you know, I don't, I'm not, I don't have an insider seat in this, but I can tell you there's nobody from the, uh, you know, therapeutic carbohydrate restriction world. There's nobody working on the front lines of reversing type two diabetes or any other diet related disease. There's nobody talking about, um, the need to reduce sugar or much less any other kind of carbohydrate the hunger groups have been co-opted in large part by the soft drink companies. So even the hunger groups are not asking people, say, in the you know food stamps, what we now call SNAP programs, to reduce their consumption of um, sugar-sweetened beverages. That's the level. I mean, even that proposal uh, did not go through for this conference. So on top of that whole effort, and we now have this huge White House effort, and there, you know, they have a number of programs that they have proposed. Mostly it's, uh, you know, more funding for the guidelines, more education, the guidelines, more places, more, you know, more and more of this government program in more places. And, you know, if those guidelines were giving people good advice, that could be a great idea. It certainly would counteract the the kind of drug is, you know, the drug pharmaceutical industry and their approach to sickness, which is just to give people more medication. But, um, you know, at the moment, what we I think what we're going to see is more of the guidelines. If they're able to pass any of these programs, which I think in the midterm elections, given the likely turnover in the House is seems increasingly unlikely. So it might be, um, you know, it might be that these don't come to fruition. So what will be the end result of this conference? Will they change any policy from this? Is it just to kind of keep the conversation going? Is this something they'll use when they set the guidelines again in 2025? Like what, for this particular conference, like what is the end game? What are they, what are they, what, what's going to happen? There's, there are so many different agendas in this conference that I think you can't have, you, there's no one outcome. Many of their proposals, as I said, depend on congressional approval. It's unlikely that that will happen before the midterm elections. 
Other proposals involve the private sector. There have uh, there have been um, there's an effort to reorganize the entire government so that there's that all nutrition programs fall under one new agency that they're proposing. I think you know all I can say is the things that have actually been passed is there's a two million dollar pilot program for the food is medicine program that has actually been proposed and is in potential uh, appropriate potentially will be appropriated for next year uh, with no details really other than organic food as to what that food might look like. But um, I think what you're going to see is that this is going to be used as a template that um, that the Biden administration will try to roll out in the coming years and maybe it'll be picked up by an, an up and the next administration. But I think we just really don't know at this point. Gotcha. Yeah, it's so interesting. So on the one hand, I see... I see the plant-based message and movement and, you know, the Game Changers documentaries and I see the Tufts Food Compass and I see the the, the government guidelines and, and just just a lot of stuff pushing in that direction. But I also see, you know, some movement at the American Diabetes Association where they are at least allowing practitioners to practice low carb. I'm seeing lots of anecdote. Lots more people are getting very healthy by lowering their carbohydrate intake and going back to healthy, saturated fats. I see lots of medical professionals. We've interviewed several on this podcast alone, probably 20 or 30 different people in the medical community that have changed their own lives and are now changing the lives of their patients. So on the one hand, I'm feeling very pessimistic about this whole situation. On the other hand, I'm honestly like wondering, like, have is, is there going to be this moment where enough people are going to start to turn the tide and we're going to have to change our conversation? Very curious in, in your position from where you are, how are you feeling these days on being optimistic or pessimistic about our situation? Well, like you, I feel a little schizophrenic about it because, as you say, there's movement in the American Diabetes Association. There's ABC News coming out with two news segments on on low-carb diets and saying they're obviously uh, successful and everybody agreeing on Good Morning America as if it's always been known. And and clearly, there are there's just research coming out all the time Um in very promising ways for, for Alzheimer's, for mental health, uh, mental illnesses. Um, so that's very hopeful. And one thing, I don't know where this is going to end up, but I will say one thing to anybody who's listening and watching, which is it really is going to depend on everybody participating. Like it is going to depend on us because we are the forces for change. We are the ones who prevented the saturated fat caps from being lowered even more, which is what the dietary committee wanted in the last guidelines. We are the ones who got those 77% of comments on low carbohydrate diets. And it's incredibly important, even if you feel like your own life is going just fine, because it will affect. I do believe that they will try to roll out taxes on meat. They will try to push meat, uh, the takeaway meat in schools, they will promote more and more grains because it's cheaper. I think it will affect, if if not you, then your loved ones or your children or your elderly relative in a, in a, um, an elder care home, the military. Um, so there are many ways in which it does affect people. So I would encourage people to sign up for the newsletter at the nutrition coalition, which is the group I founded. We have a new executive director coming in a really great person that I can't tell you who it is yet. A lot of experience who is going to take this to the next level. So go to nutritioncoalition.us 
and sign up for the newsletter. And that is how we will get the word out to you to participate. People have come out in the thousands and we need people's voices, you know, to call their congressman or their senator or to, we need them to show up because it is us metabolically aware people that are going to be able to make a difference. And just to give people an idea, like how can we make a difference? I mean, obviously we're not invited to the White House conference, but let's say we can make it easier to get continuous glucose monitors. That is a great way to educate people, right? You know, we could, maybe we could do something like that, which would kind of bypass the guidelines a little bit. Maybe we could get an alternative dietary guidelines for people who are not metabolically well because uh, currently our guidelines are really meant only for healthy people. Well, 7% of us are metabolically well now. So so ironic. So how about another guidelines for people who are not well? That's the kind of thing that we can do going forward. That's but we amazing. need all of us to participate. Yeah, that's amazing. And you make it so easy on the coalition website with like templates of things that you can even just copy and change a few things to be able to write to your senators, your legislators. So I definitely really appreciate that and really appreciate any time that we get to spend with you and, and all of your hard work. Can you tell our listeners one more time, where is the best place that they can go to connect with you and your work? Um, unsettled Science on Substack, if you just type that into Google, uh, you'll find me there. Just subscribe. It's currently free um, to get my newsletter. And then go to nutritioncoalition.us and sign up there to get the newsletter there to uh, stay informed about what you can do to make a difference. And then any places on social media that you want people to go to follow you? Oh, on Twitter, I'm at Big Fat Surprise. And uh, that's the place where I'm the most active. Awesome. We will link to all of that. Yeah, perfect. (laughs) We'll link to all of that in the show notes. Nina Teichels is always just such an honor and a pleasure to talk to you. Somebody who is extremely influential in my own understanding of nutrition and, and the, the, ripple effect at this point of, of your work is absolutely tremendous and has helped a lot of people stop with their suffering. So thank you so very much for everything that you do. And thank you for taking time to appear on our show today. We really appreciate you. Casey, you're always such a pleasure to talk to. And thank you for having me on your show. Absolutely. Such an honor. And this has been another episode of Balanced Body Radio. As always, thank you so very much for listening to and supporting Boundless Body Radio. It has been such a joy to go on this journey now that it's been two years of doing these episodes and all the amazing conversations that we've had with thought leaders and to be able to share this message around the world with literally hundreds of thousands of people has been so amazing. If you haven't already, please go over to Apple, leave us a rating and review as it's the best way for the show to continue to grow and touch more lives of people out there. I am so excited to announce that we are launching the Boundless Body Radio Premium Podcast. This is something that I have been working really hard at for a very long time and something I am very proud of. Now that we have done over 300 episodes, our content can be a little bit overwhelming if you really want to learn about one particular topic and really zero in on that topic. So that is exactly what I have done. I have gone through all of our episodes, taken the very best clips all about one particular topic and put them into long form 
very informative and concise episodes called the Boundless Body Radio Premium Podcast. That can be found on our brand new Patreon page, which I'm really excited to announce as we have all kinds of different offers there and different tiers. We're including early releases of our show, Boundless Body Radio. We typically keep about 15 to 20 episodes scheduled at any given time. So we have options there where you can have early access to those. We are also offering group and one-on-one coaching and also access to these premium podcast episodes, the Boundless Body Radio Premium Podcast. We have three that are launching right now, and I will be making a new one every other week. And we believe that we are providing these for a very, very high value. So please check us out on Patreon. Check the link in the notes to be able to get there. And thank you, as always, for listening to Boundless Body Radio.